Hey there, Uncommon Law listeners. This is David Schultz. Uh, you're going to hear a very special episode today. This is a project that my colleague Ayana Alexander and I have been working on for a really long time. It's about women in law. And let's just let Ayana take it away. Paula Edgar has a checklist. And I started with, if money were no object, number one, I would pay women what the same thing that men would be paid. That would be the, the <laughs> equity would be um, what I'd be striving for first. Edgar is the founder and CEO of the PGE Consulting Group. She works with companies on diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. And when we asked her if you were going to create from scratch the most women-friendly law firm ever and money were no object, how would you do it? But she definitely didn't stop at equal pay. Number one was lactation rooms, maternity leave, maternity leave, wellness, mental health support, a hybrid schedule, free menstrual supplies in the, in the restroom, having full-length mirrors in the bathroom. Right. I'm always looking for a full length mirror. And I think it's important. Lactation rooms, paternity leave, free menstrual supplies, full length mirrors. So far, that list could apply to any profession. But Edgar got to something that only applies to the maddening and sometimes brutal world of the legal industry, the billable hour. And Paula said, even in an ideal world, billable hours might still be around. The billable hour is going to be the last to go. It will. If, if it even ever goes. Because that is an easy way for people to literally calculate that we're killing you and you're doing a good job, right? So we should uh, introduce ourselves, right? Yeah, so I'm Ayana Alexander. I'm a reporter with Bloomberg Law. And I'm David Schultz, and I produce and host podcasts here at Bloomberg Law. And for the past few months, we've been thinking about this question a lot. What would the most women-friendly law firm even look like? Law firms can be inhospitable places for women, and we know this not just anecdotally, but through the data that law firms themselves report. For example, let's take a look at an ABA survey of 1,200 lawyers at the country's top 500 law firms by headcount. Almost three-fourths of the men in this survey said they're satisfied with the recognition they receive for their work, compared with just half of the women. A little more than two-thirds of the male lawyers say they're happy with how their compensation is doled out, compared with less than half of the female attorneys. And those numbers are the same when it comes to opportunities for advancement. And when you dig around into that survey, it only gets worse. Two-thirds of the female attorneys say they've been perceived as less committed to their careers, compared with just 2% of the men. And four of every five female attorneys who responded say they'd been mistaken for a more junior employee. For male attorneys, that number was zero. I think that bears repeating. 80% of the female attorneys said they'd been mistaken for a junior employee, while none of the male attorneys reported this happening to them. So we've really got a problem here. But what we don't know, or at least what Ayana and I wanted to find out, is if you could fix this problem, how? How would you make a woman-friendly law firm? If you were starting from scratch, truly leveling the playing field, how would you? And that's what we're going to be looking into in this podcast. We've spoken to more than half a dozen women in the legal industry, from the consultants to partners and some associates near the beginning of their careers. And we're also going to hear from some women who were on track to make partner or who actually did make partner, but because of all the stress and angst they encountered, went a different way. We're calling this podcast A Woman's Firm, and we hope you'll stick around as we build this fictional, female-friendly law firm from the ground up. And Ayana, by the way, we already have a name for our fictional firm. Paula, in addition to coming up with that long checklist, also came up with a name. So uh, I would spend a lot of money in my my firm. (laughs) Gals, gals, and gals. (laughs) It would be LLP. 
There it is. Gals, Gals, and Gals, LLP. You know, there are definitely rules about what you can name a firm, and I don't think this falls within those rules. But you know what? I don't care. We're calling our firm Gals, Gals, and Gals. There it is. Boom. So, Ayana, this is the first meeting of the partners of Gals, Gals, and Gals, LLP. What is our first order of business in making the most female-friendly law firm? Where do we start? Well, I think we have to start with compensation. Yeah, definitely. And don't get me wrong, all of the things that Paula talked about, the floor-length mirrors, the lactation rooms, that's all really important, and we'll get to that. But I think when you talk about improving women's experiences in the legal industry, you have to start with the pay gap. The pay gap, of course, is the difference between the wages of the average man and the average woman in America. According to the Pew Research Center, women on average earned 84 cents for every dollar a man earned in 2020. And that gap didn't really change much during the pandemic. Now, that's across all industries, and we're just looking at law firms here. If you want a much deeper dive into why this phenomenon is so persistent across the entire global economy, check out the Paycheck podcast from our pals over at Bloomberg News. It is super great stuff. And the legal industry is definitely not immune from this, not by a long shot. Yeah, the most recent partner compensation survey from Major Lindsay in Africa, the ones they do every two years, found some surprising and frankly troubling trends. Female partner compensation went up by 13% since 2010, which is good. But their male counterparts saw a 31% jump. That means not only is there a pay gap, but it's actually getting worse. It's worth examining lawyers and law firms separately because compensation in this business works differently. For lawyers and large law firms, billable hours have an enormous impact on your compensation. So, of course, that means if you're not billing, you're not getting paid the big bucks. Not everybody is going to be the billable rock star that bills 2,700 hours but you might have other people who are contributing valuably in other ways. That's Kathleen Perez, founder of the employment and ADA firm Perez Law in New Orleans. One thing that's really held back women in law is taking on all of these non-billable roles, whether it's recruiting, mentoring, women's initiative, um, diversity committees. All of those things are very important to the organization and aren't really valued the way that billable hours are. It's easy to see how this kind of compensation structure can be a negative feedback loop. It creates a huge disincentive for anyone, women or men, to do the work that's needed to make a firm more diverse and equal. So then nothing ever changes. Law firms have told lawyers that, you know, bill more hours, be dedicated to this business, and we will make you this partner. The reality is, is that once you become partner, it doesn't stop there. It's a hamster wheel that sort of never ends. And this is something Kathleen knows a lot about. She was an equity partner at the firm Baker Donaldson for nearly 13 years before striking out her own in 2020. Michelle Browning-Coglin was also a former partner. She's now counsel of ND Galley Law in Louisville, Kentucky. And she says an easy way to solve the billable hours problem is just to hire more secretaries and paralegals. If money were no object, there would be a better distribution of assistance within law firms. And what I mean by that is legal secretarial pools have gotten, since I've been practicing, more and more attorneys assigned a less and less secretarial pool. And what I have found with that is that with people who've been at the law firms longer, who are often male attorneys or attorneys who might be more um, uh, forceful or a little bit more aggressive, they tend to take up a larger share of 
an assistance time. And when that time is shared, it makes it harder for everybody to get the help they need, which means you end up taking on more non-billable work. This is important, but of course it would just allow women to bill even more. And that doesn't really make a law for more female-friendly or frankly human-friendly, if we're being honest. You know what? That makes me think we need to go back further then. Remember when we said we were going to start with compensation and then do something about the billable hour? Yeah. Well, as a principal here at Gals, Gals, and Gals, I'm going to use my authority to flip the script. What we really need to do is address the other big elephant in the room, which is motherhood. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised it's taken us this long to get here. Right? The motherhood penalty is something that exists across all fields. And the data has shown that for every child that a mother has, that hurts her earning potential and even more broadly, her overall career. There are some really obvious ways the motherhood penalty plays out in firms, according to Kathleen Perez. One way that law firms I have found have fallen behind on the parental leave side is not to recognize in compensation women's time while they're out on leave. So for example, if a law firm has a bonus structure that provides a percentage of pay to lawyers for meeting certain metrics, that an employee doesn't miss out on the entire bonus simply because they didn't meet the year-long goal and instead look at a prorated goal. I think the issue of parenthood and compensation are linked in really interesting ways, actually, because first of all, parents, of course, need more compensation to take care of their kids, obviously. Yeah, kids are very expensive. And even if you have the money to do this, you can't get around the fact that kids take up a lot of your time. Someone's got to look after them when school's not in. But in a different way, for a lot of people, having kids can make you rethink what the point of earning a paycheck really is. Like, if I'm going to break my back for this firm, I want the firm to show me some appreciation. That's what Michelle eventually came to realize before she left Big Law last year. Probably the most passionate topic for me is around pay equity. Because I think ultimately, these are jobs and we're there for pay. Many of us also come to our career for some kinds of self-fulfillment, but at the end of the day, we're there for pay. And in a job, Pay equals power, pay equals opportunity, pay equals access. Things like being able to afford additional help. And I actually had somebody, a managing partner of a law firm, stop me one day and say, well, why don't you have your nanny do that for you? And I really love, I really love this person and, and, and it's okay. But I said, because you all don't pay me enough to afford a nanny. So, Ayana, you may or may not know this, but I'm a big Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing these interviews, I had a specific Beatles song in my head. Can't buy me love, and, of course, the reason I was humming this tune is that it relates to the compensation question we've been talking about. A lot of people think firms can't just pay their way out of this mess. Paying women more is great, but it can't be the only thing. Like love... You can't really buy the ideal law firm that's friendly, nice to women. That's Vivia Chen, an opinion columnist here at Bloomberg Law. While she freely admits that the billable hour system is, in her words, just evil, the real problem is that women are at a disadvantage when it comes to generating business. And it's something that she says law firms need to take responsibility for. 
You know, they need to train people, especially women, in the art of client development. And to me, you cannot begin that early enough, because at the end of the day, how you progress in law firm really depends on the clients you bring in. This is another common theme we heard again and again in interviews. It's not just that women get paid less than men; it's that there are systemic barriers in place that prevent them from bringing value to the firm. For example, Vivia says she heard countless stories of women toiling away in the office while men go out and do "quote unquote" client building, in the way men often do. You know, one thing I often hear from women partners is like, "My God, I'm working my buns off in the office on Friday afternoon while I see my fellow male partners, you know, lugging their golf gear, you know, to the country club." But actually, the problem is even deeper than this. I feel like that's a phrase that we've used a bunch already. It's even deeper than that. Yeah, that's true. But it's not just about women getting training in how to get clients. It's also about who's inheriting existing clients. It's a problem called legacy origination. Here's Michelle Brown and Coglin on that. If you are somebody who has amassed a book of business, potentially that book of business was partially granted to you from one of your former mentors, and then now you have it and you've built it up over years. And you've done that with a lot of hard work, but you've also done that with a lot of help and opportunity that was given to you. If you turn around as you start to retire or as you move away from practice and you give all of those clients over to somebody who looks just like you, the opportunities for a woman or a person of color at that firm are diminished. And because we base compensation around things that seem like they're meritocratous, right? Like how many hours somebody build. If you mix in there things like legacy origination, then that's somebody who got handed a large book of business. And I'm not saying they didn't work for it, but they had an uh, um, an extra opportunity. They had uh, extra access because of their relationship with somebody because of that similarity and because of biases that we have where we like to work with people who are similar to us. That is so interesting. Yeah. Well, then here's what I say. The next item of business for our law firm, gals, gals, and gals, let's implement a policy that if you're a white guy and you're retiring, you have to give at least part of your book of business to a woman. Hmm. Well, you don't like it? No, I do. I think that would actually be a huge thing that would solve a lot of problems, but sexism is a broader societal thing. Yeah, definitely true. It's not even just in the workplace. It's this pervasive social thing. And I'm not saying that we at Gals, Gals, and Gals need to fix sexism worldwide. Definitely not. We can't do that. But I think we still haven't created the structures that can account for and correct for the way that women are seen more broadly by society. Here's what I'm talking about. I spoke with Victoria Alvarez, an associate at Troutman Pepper, and she brought up the topic of caretaker bias and how women just face different expectations than men in general. I find that women often carry more mental load than men. Women will work their full eight or 10 or 12 or 14 hour work day, come home and remember to order the paper towels and order the medicine and make the Instacart order. Where often, and many men will disagree with me vehemently, but often men don't have that mental responsibility of the invisible labor that's associated with running a household. Oh, God, yeah. My uh, my boyfriend and I just got into an argument yesterday. I was just like, I've, 
I sorted the clothes, I washed the clothes, I dried the clothes, I folded the clothes. Did he notice the clothes were clean? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, you didn't even... And he came in, I mean, like, I made dinner, all that. He came in, he was like, oh, thanks for dinner. And I'm looking at these baskets full of nicely folded clothes, like... This too. I have to get ready mentally to go back to work tomorrow. <laughs> right. No, I mean, mental load and this is mental load is truly why I stopped doing a lot of household chores. And that's not to say I live in a pigsty, but I'm very privileged and I can outsource some of my household chores and that helps my mental load and that helps me build more hours. But for most women, and a lot of women in law, they don't have the income to outsource their chores. Yikes, that reminds me of what Michelle said when that guy told her to just get a nanny to do it. Yeah, the responsibility to run the household is fairly or unfairly and usually unfairly yeah. given to the woman. So the ideal women-friendly law firms would provide the kinds of services that women need. Flexible schedules, free and convenient child care, generous parental leave, both for women and for men, all of that. And another thing that women need, according to a lot of the folks we spoke to, are sponsors and mentors. Victoria says this is more important than anything else to advancing a woman's career. I really can't underemphasize sponsorship. I mean, there's a difference between taking an interest in someone's career and helping them and really sponsoring and advocating for someone. Because at a large firm, when you're up for partner, people have to want you to make partner because you're dispersing the pool of available funds. So you need advocates to really step to the plate for you and tell others why you deserve to be an equal and why you deserve a place at the table. And studies have demonstrated that the most effective advocates for women are white men. So we need more white men to step up and advocate on behalf of women because often they're advocating to to people that look like them and whether consciously or, or unconsciously they're given more credence. Another reason why men need to get involved here and start participating in these groups is because if firms create groups that help women and only women, that's how you get stigmas. Here's Rangita De Silva Alwis, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, who specializes in women's rights issues. We have to make sure that we are not reinforcing gender stereotypes, but that these agile working options are made available not only for either women of color or for women in general, but to all, all women and all men. Because if not, we are reinforcing the idea that somehow women and people of color are in more need of accommodation. In reality, everyone can benefit from this type of thing. For example, McKinsey put out a survey last year that found paternity leave is hugely beneficial for men, but that many men aren't taking the full leave their companies offer. In the ideal women-friendly law firm, men take as much paternity leave as women. Right, and getting men involved is crucial. Alvarez says that one of the problems with affinity groups is that the people who participate are usually the people in the group itself. In other words, women's affinity groups typically don't see a lot of guys show up to their meetings. Absolutely. I think men should feel empowered to participate in women's initiatives generally, but also within law firms. I serve on the ABA's Commission on Women in the Profession, and we did a study called Men in the Mix. And it's a really interesting study that examines both women's conceptions of why men don't participate in women's initiatives and firms, and then the actual answers that men gave about why they don't participate. And overwhelmingly, women thought 
that men didn't participate because they were, quote, afraid of saying the wrong thing. But really, the survey demonstrated that men don't participate simply because they don't feel invited. So I think it's incumbent upon the firm to take ownership about creating a culture where men can freely sponsor and freely mentorship women without any fear, without feeling like an outsider. So, David? Yeah. That's going to be another thing we're doing here at Gals, Gals, and Gals. We'll have the most well-funded diversity office of any law firm in history. Yeah, they're the ones often setting up and running these affinity groups. But you know what, though? I know the whole premise of this project is that we're creating this fictional law firm and money's no object. But I kind of feel like throwing that kind of money at just one division of our firm isn't really a realistic thing to do. You know what I mean? Like, how do we make the business case that we should do this? I'll stipulate here. And I think I can make a business case. Or actually, let's let Lauren Reichlin do it. Back in the late 90s, when I was president of the Boston Bar Association, we actually did a report looking at the cost of attrition so that we could say to firms, look at what this is costing you every time a lawyer walks out the door. So as she mentioned, Lauren is an attorney and former partner. Now she runs the Reichland Institute for Strategic Leadership, the organization she founded to promote women's leadership in the legal industry. So why are you not accounting for what it costs to train and develop good talent uh, and, and, and instead have a model of attrition as a cost of doing business without really understanding what that cost is? If you ask most firms, what is the cost of associates when they walk out the door at year two, three, four, five? I mean, I doubt very much you're going to be able to get a very clear answer we kind of turn a blind eye to the things that, you know, even firms that say, I'm only in it for the money, they're still turning a blind eye to things that are costing them money all the time and just accepting as a so-called cost of doing business, this idea that it's okay for people to walk out the door. So, Yana, here's another principle for gals, gals, and gals. We will have the most aggressive associate retention policy in law firm history. If you're an associate for us, we will do everything in our power to get you to stay, period. Uh, Ayana, you're looking a little skeptical. Well, it's just that I'm wondering whether gals, gals, and gals will be able to turn a profit because we need money. So, yeah, it's true. Our firm is fictional. But what's the point in creating a fictional firm if it's just destined to lose money year after year? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think we owe it to our listeners to at least pose the question of whether a firm like this could make money. And we did. We posed this question to Bruce McEwen. He's a former big law attorney who now runs Adam Smith Esquire, a consultancy that works with law firms on business issues. Yeah, so this guy's whole job is to step into a firm and fix its problems. So we asked him about whether any of this would actually work or whether it's all a big pipe dream. And he actually surprised us and said, yeah, all these policies we laid out there all have one thing in common. They're great for the satisfaction of all your lawyers, male and female, and that can only inure to the benefit of clients ultimately. He actually brought up Silicon Valley, which is famous for providing all kinds of amenities to its employees. The point he made was that does the legal industry really think its business model is better than Google's or Apple's? And actually, the thing that I found most interesting about what McEwen said was about our associate retention policy, that we'd strive to keep as many associates on as possible. 
He acknowledged that this would kind of break the pyramid-like business model that most firms have. And that's the idea that if there are too many associates at a firm, the base of the pyramid gets too wide and the firm can't really sustain that. Yeah, and he said, you know what? This whole move up or get out concept is just a bad model that needs to be done away with anyway. I do think it could be a problem, but I would question the premise that the bimodal associate partner career track is the best way to run a law firm. I don't think there's any other business that I can think of that has, um, you know, up or out period for every professional in the firm as the career path. I mean, you know, in the military, private, corporal, sergeant, you know, it it makes sense. You you learn and, and mature into more senior positions. But my point is, There are a lot of rungs on the ladder. We only have one, and it's about 10 feet high. (laughs) I think both of you are a thousand percent right to say that the current law firm model um, is not built for, and frankly could not tolerate economically, a lot, a lot, a lot of partners. I'm saying, let's rethink this model. And let's really get into the way this business model is broken here and the human cost. Kelly Keller works on IP and tech issues for her own firm. But before that, she was ensconced in the big law world, trying to do that excruciating climb up the big corporate ladder. And then she left. I happen to be somebody who got off the big law train because it just was not, it was not a future I could see myself happy having. I did, I couldn't figure out when it got good. I saw the money, but I couldn't figure out when I was ever going to breathe and live a constructive life. It was just more work, more work, more pressure, more pressure, more pressure. And I think it's really important to point out here, Kelly's doing just fine now. She has her own firm. She's working on really cool stuff. She's not a cautionary tale, someone who couldn't stick it out to make partner. She's a super talented, successful attorney. But that's the point. Because of the way the legal industry works and because no one is challenging it, A law firm lost out on that talent. Actually, more than one firm. I tried. I tried twice. In the first one, I was offered an associate position. And also, let me give you some context. I was 34 when I graduated law school. I went to law school at night. I buried my dad. And I got married while I was in law school. And I owned a home. So I was in a different position. I was not 25 without any responsibilities. I had a lot of responsibility. And I asked if I could stay on the transactional track as opposed to doing litigation. And I was told no. And my mentor in that firm went to bat for me and she fought hard for me. And I'm so grateful and she is still such an important part of my career. But I was told no. So by listening to me, that I'm here, you've invested an awful lot in me, but I don't want to be a litigator. And I don't want to work all these hours. I literally just buried my dad. And the last thing I wanted to do was not spend time with my family. It was really important to me because at the end of the day, you don't get that time back. 
then I moved to another firm. And then when I was ready to leave that firm, and the reason why I left is that firm was in Virginia and we were moving to Pennsylvania for my husband's job and also to take care of his mom. She was widowed. He's an only child. So it was a lifestyle move for us. I remember calling the um, head of human resources and I talked a lot with her about how could I continue to provide value, but similarly not be on this billable hour nightmare. I just was so stressed out all the time. So I said, can I be part of the pro bono coordination team? What can I do? Can I do anything that just allows me to continue to do the work, but without the billable hour pressure? Once again, she went to bat for me, but the answer was no. So when a woman comes and says, I'm willing to take the hit on partnership or whatever it is, I need to go at a different pace. And you tell her no, she's out, she's gone. She'll go create her own life. As you've heard, we've talked to a lot of people, we've gathered a lot of information, but Kelly in many ways represents where we are today. It's a really tough industry, particularly for women, and it's not clear that change is on the horizon. We'll just have to wait and see. So I think we can just leave it there. What do you think, Ayana? Yeah, I like that. Let's give Kelly the last word. All right. So that concludes this board meeting for Gals, Gals, and Gals. And that concludes this podcast. We want to extend our thanks to everyone who spoke with us and offered us their ideas and to all the editors who helped us refine this and made it so special. That includes Chris Opfer, Andrew Childers, Vivia Chen, and our executive producer, Josh Block. And if you want to hear more on this topic, tune into our weekly podcast on the merits. We cover stuff like this all the time. And check out our website, news.bloomberglaw.com, for all of our coverage of the legal industry. In the meantime, I'm David Schultz. And I'm Ayanna Alexander. Thanks for listening. Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits. Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.